Hello everybody and welcome to this last in the series of Feel Good Fantasy Animations. Uh, thanks for all your suggestions over the last few weeks. We've really had a lot of fun playing out tournaments and uh, taking advice from you on what films you've been watching to get you through the lockdown. Um, but we're gonna, gonna before we start with this episode on Princess Mononoke, take a few moments to explain um, how we're going to use the podcast over the next coming months. Yes, in fact, we've enjoyed your suggestions so much, thinking through fantasy animation in a variety of different contexts. What we'd like to do is continue on this track uh, and keep finding a place uh, on the podcast to engage with your suggestions and to let you guide the conversations. So here's what we're going to do going forward, um, if you will follow me in my line of thinking. Uh, we're going to basically do one episode for you and one episode for us. So once a month, we release, remember, two episodes a month. So once a month, we are going to do an episode based solely on suggestions that you send us. Um, each month, we'll pick a particular theme or idea or some aspect of fantasy animation we'd be interested in exploring. And we're going to seek out um, ideas from you guys uh, to let us know what we should be watching. Um, so we're going to do an episode for us and then an episode for you. So the next one of these will be in a month's time from the release of this episode. Absolutely. So for this next episode, what we would like to do uh, is to receive your suggestions based on the broader themes of diversity and inclusion. Uh, given the current circumstances, we uh, have been reflecting a lot on the content that we uh, cover, the material and the kinds of stories that we tell. Uh, given the recent Black Lives Matter protests and wider attempts to decolonize academia, we've become increasingly aware of what we do and how we do it. Um, it's something we want to think about ongoing and moving forward. But to give it a shot in the arm, please do send us your suggestions for potential podcast topics that push fantasy animation into new corners uh, and new avenues that speak to diversity and inclusion. If you are stuck for ideas, you can check out our latest blog post, which we will include in the show notes um, by Misha uh, Mahalova, who has provided a list, um, a sort of starter list um, based on discussions that have been happening at the Society of um, Animation Studies um, of um, animations to, to, you know, that broaden our horizons beyond, let's face it, white men. Um, and that might trigger some ideas, but really we want to hear what you think. Um, send us your idea and tell us why, because we'd like to read some of these out on the podcast next time. Um, you can do it by Twitter, you can do it by Facebook, you can do it by Instagram, you can do it by Reddit, or you can do it the old-fashioned way and get in touch via the website. The website is fantasy-animation.org, as always, and our handles are at fananimresearch, F-A-N, a-N-I-M research. Get in touch and in a month's time we'll read out some of our favourite entries, our favourite um, suggestions and we'll do an episode based on the one we pick. But for now, please do enjoy the show. In a time when gods walk the earth, an epic battle rages between the encroaching civilization of man and the gods of the forest. When the forest has been cleared and the wolves wiped out, this place will be the richest land in the world. Now, the fate of the world rests on the courage of one fearless princess. I'm not afraid to die, and I would do anything to get the humans out of here. And one brave warrior. You fight like a demon, boy. Like something possessed. What exactly are you here for? To see with eyes unclouded. I hate. Now watch closely, everyone. I'm going to show you how to kill a god. Fire! Hello, avid listeners, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holliday. And me, Alex Sargent. 
So for this latest lockdown instalment, we turn back to the work of Studio Ghibli, completing an unofficial trilogy um, that matches up with our previous discussions on My Neighbor Totoro and Castle in the Sky. This time, we're looking at the studio's 1997 uh, feature, Princess Mononoke. Um, now, joining us in this battle of tradition and modernity, animation and fantasy, is anime scholar Raina Dennison, senior lecturer in the School of Art, Media and American Studies at UEA, and author of a number of books, chapters and articles on Japanese animated cinema. Um, this includes a recent edited collection on Mononoke, subtitled Understanding Studio Ghibli's Monster Princess, which was published a couple of years ago. So, Raina, thank you very much for indulging Alex and I. We've wanted you on the podcast for a while, so thank you for uh, taking the time to speak with us about Mononoke on the podcast. Absolutely my pleasure. I am so excited to be here. Well, we're very, very excited to, to have you. Now, normally we would invite guests to just briefly introduce their relationship to the film and what it sort of means to them and where they're sort of coming from in that respect. But in this case, I've read the introduction to your Mononoke collection, so I know a bit about where it sits within your personal and professional life. But for those listeners who haven't yet had the pleasure of the, the anthology, um, I was just wondering if you could outline a little bit where the film features in your own anime journey. So um, I first saw this movie when it came out in Japan. Um, I was out in Japan as an undergraduate exchange student and somebody said, hey, you like those animated movies. Why don't you come with me? There's a new one coming out by this, this Studio Ghibli company. And I remember sitting through it and being amazed and astonished, but also confused and wondering where this movie was coming from. And I've been writing about it ever since. So I did my undergraduate dissertation on it and then my PhD. And finally, I've gotten a book out about it, the edited collection that I did a couple of years ago. So it's a movie that's really stayed with me through my whole career. And it's one that I have an enormous love for. Um, but I think the thing I like about Mononoke is the more I learn about it, the more I like it. I'm going to jump in with my impossible question straight away um, <laughs> of the episode. Uh, what's it about, Raina? What is Princess Mononoke about? Okay. <laughs> it's about, so it's about a turning point in Japanese prehistory if you, or, or a Japanese history that never really existed. And I really hope we come back to the idea of historical fantasy in a bit. Um so it's about the Muromachi period, so the 14th, 15th century in Japan, and about the people who get left out of the normal genres of movies in Japan. So it's about those people who've been left out of history and also their battle against a fantastical version of nature. So it is an environmental story. It's also a story about trying to rethink and rewrite Japanese history. Um, but basically, it's also a love story, and it has this um, catchphrase, ikiro, which means live, or, you know, it's kind of telling you you should live. Um, and that was a really important, different kind of message coming out of Studio Ghibli in the late 1990s to the other kinds of messages that were coming out around anime that were much more dark and nihilistic. So this was, despite being Studio Ghibli's one of Studio Ghibli's darker and more violent films, it was also carrying with it this positive message about living and loving and um, embracing life. 
Yeah, I mean, for, funny enough, the, the thing that you mentioned about it being a kind of just a darker uh, Ghibli film, and and I was sort of wrestling the whole way through with its identity as precisely that, as a as a, a work from this this sort of studio, and I I was thinking, okay, so the film itself it's about these rising tensions then between nature and culture, gods mm-hmm. of the forest and the humans who um who sort of mine and consume its resources, and then I was thinking, okay, so in many ways, you know, is this and maybe this is the question as well that, that is this a kind of identikit Ghibli film because it seems to deal with a lot of the themes um, and perhaps ties in with that entwining of, of politics and the environment and um, and I, so I wondered is it is it a sort of quintessential or typical Ghibli film in lots and lots of ways or is it you know, I'm interested in this this sort of suggestion that it, it sort of pushes Ghibli more towards darker um, darkest kind of subject matter because as I was watching it it did feel like it was hitting the kinds of beats a narrative beats, thematic beats that I was expecting and, and hoping for and wanting with uh, with a Ghibli film. So I was honestly, I was a little surprised when this came up in the in the 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 listener draw because of all the Studio Ghibli movies, this is probably one of the top three least fuzzy, least friendly movies. Um, it's got you know serious violence in it, and it's got. Um, these these war metaphors throughout it uh there are curses there's um exploitation and discussions of you know everything from prostitution to leprosy and it's got you know this this real visceral battle between nature and humanity so when it came up as a possible feel-good movie i was i was kind of like wow where are we right now um (laughs) That this this movie that is probably the darkest of the or well, one of the two darkest of the Ghibli movies is is something we go to and turn to to feel good at the moment. Yeah, well, I guess I guess part of that might be that it's it's a really sort of mesmerizing movie to unpack. As as I find a lot of the Ghibli movies we've watched so far, and I'm, and I'm no expert. I'm glad you're here to to put us right, Rainer. But um, it, it's certainly sort of for me. It's sort of for the first hour. It almost functions like a sort of fantasy portal quest movie. We have a sort of protagonist leading us through these woods, exploring new realms, introducing new worlds, and then sort of, as you say, turns into this um, war epic between various different sides. And and part of the pleasure of the movie is trying to unpack these waves of different meanings and different evocations and different atmospheres that seem to be sort of bubbling around um and it, it it sort of strikes me every time i watch it that something different um bubbles to the surface but it's such a um satisfying movie to rewatch that perhaps there's a there's a certain rewatch factor in what makes this a pleasurable feel good film but i completely agree with you in that i found it much darker than i remembered it being and and i'm very very delighted you've introduced the fuzziness scale into the debate because i think <laughs> that's a really useful um taxonomy uh, to to unpack these things, but yeah, you're right. It's not fuzzy at all. It's brutal and 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 visceral and harsh. And certainly, when the movie came out, um, particularly when it came out as the f- kind of first big release uh, in that Disney Tokuma deal um, in the 1990s in America, it was met with both you know great appreciation, but also some consternation. Um, this was not a movie people felt was all that child friendly. And Miyazaki's even talked about that in Japan, saying, you know, yes, some of the battle scenes might make younger children cry. But this was something he felt was such an important part of dealing with 
the the kind of clash between nature and humanity or the environment and humanity that he really felt it had to have that kind of story um it wasn't something he could do as a pastoral kind of story it was something that had to be more visceral and and you know his touchstones for this movie are things like Akira Kurosawa's films so you know he is going back to that live action um period film from Japan here more more so than maybe other animated films. It's funny that you mentioned the Kurosawa connection because I had I had uh, Ozu in my mind, and the reason I had Ozu in my mind was that um, these sorts of the seriousness of the subject matter and the and the fact that you said that it couldn't be a sort of pastoral story. There are moments. I think the first, I think one of the first tonal shifts happens um, in one of the early early battles where Ashik um, Ashik uh, is is shooting. I think he's just been I think he's just been bitten. I think um, or just been attacked by this this sort of um, uh, monstrous you know, thing on his arm. But he shoots this arrow and then like someone's head, one of the soldiers' heads or samurai's heads falls off and his arm falls off. And I was like, oh we're doing we're doing this and and so the sort of the tonal shifts i thought were really interesting and 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 the the uh kurosawa connection i think accounts for a lot of um the action set pieces but there are moments obviously Ghibli is is, is renowned for its use of um use of the envi- use of the environment in a particular kind of way um the peace, tranquility, the threat of uh, modernity onto the environment, and therefore tradition, and all these sorts of things. Um, but there were moments in the in the film where it seemed to be that that characters. There there were moments where where the film dwells a little bit on the landscape, and there are moments of sort of reflection. And I was thinking about these these uh, pillow shots that Ozu was very famous famously using. These sorts of um, shots that are random interludes i think of everyday life that linger over settings and there's a couple of moments where characters leave the frame um there's one moment where lady aboshi leaves the frame and then suddenly you're just left with a shot of the landscape and actually i think that that those those little interludes those shots seem to dramatize um or or perhaps make more uh, visceral the the threats upon it i i thought the in terms of its organization and shot selection and all these sorts of things and the structure of the film it's very it was very tight and very meaningful and 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 those little lingering shots that were really really brief that allowed the audience and the spectator to just look at the background or look at the the landscape and the environment without the character in it momentarily seemed to dramatize quite nicely exactly the film's broader narrative um thrust about this tension between um, fantasy, modernity, the environment, threats to tradition, and all these sorts of things. But no, so as I said, I think the connection that the the that you make to Kurosawa, presumably that then accounts for the yeah accounts for some of the more dramatic sequences, the the sort of action set pieces, the the treatments of tradition. But there were little moments where it the the threat of uh, of, of Ghibli was uh, um, I, I don't want to use the word traditional Ghibli, but um, Sort of yeah, the formula formula of Ghibli was starting to to rear its head, and those sort of treatments of of nature versus culture, I thought, were really um, were really effective. Yeah. So at the time this movie came out, Miyazaki was all over the press in Japan, talking with historians, talking with famous film critics, and he would he repeatedly talked about how he was trying to break the stranglehold that he felt Kurosawa has on what's known as the Jidai Geki or the period film in Japan. And he wanted to do that by um, adopting 
what was then a kind of newly emerging movement of bottom-up history, um, where he wanted to reframe history not through the lens of the samurai characters um, and emperors and princesses, but through everyday people who worked, for example, at Lady Eboshi's Iron Town, through villagers that they might meet along the way. And so there's a side of this movie that is incredibly meticulously historically accurate. Um, and then there's another side of this movie that is an entire fantasy about what a a kind of kind of grassroots version of Japanese culture would have looked like in this period. Um, and you throw into that that he's done research into Ashitaka's community of the Emishi, which were a long disappeared uh, tribe from Japan's native history. Uh, you throw into that that um, San is dressed as a kind of as an aside to Jomon or pre-historical Japanese art and pottery um, remains that have been found. So her costume is very much styled on a pre, almost a pre-historical, a pre-modern moment in Japanese history. And all of a sudden you start to see that this is a, a really carefully constructed historical palimpsest. And there are things in here that maybe shouldn't exist in this period. But when you start digging into the detail, it's all really close to being right. So um, Miyazaki has talked about borrowing traditional um, clothing designs from Thailand, from tribal peoples in Thailand, to do um, Sans costume and other costumes. But he's also talked about how the Emishi are you know, did embroidery on their costumes and they wanted to do embroidery, but it was going to be too expensive to animate. So there's loads of this background detail around. And it was an attempt to shake Kurosawa's version of the, the Jidaigeki or the period film and to give Japanese viewers a different version of that kind of, of that genre. So he's doing that on the one hand. And then on the other hand, he has this supernatural fantasy about the forest and Japan's traditional, um, well, um, traditional uh, yokai cultures, um, the gods and monsters of Shinto and other religious and um, folklore traditions as well. So what does that interplay between those two elements, I guess, on the one hand, what does that historical accuracy um, and exactly that kind of authenticity where it's pulling from lots and lots of different uh, sources, what does that do maybe this is a question for, for you and Alex, what does, the, what does the historical accuracy do to the supernatural elements? What do the supernatural elements do to the, the historical accuracy? Because I don't necessarily think they are um, necessarily, yeah, I don't think they're in opposition as much as, as they perhaps could be. There's, there's something around the dialogue between those two things. So I, yeah, I, I, it's interesting that you said that it's this palimpsest or has this palimpsestic quality that, that pulls in in its revision of, um, as you say, a bottom-up version of, of history and what, what the world would have looked like at that particular moment. But what does the, yeah, what does that interplay with these extreme supernatural beings versus this historical accuracy? What what do you think is the um, the conversation or the exchange that's being had between those two elements? Are we supposed to sort of see one as um, influencing the other or what, what do we make of this sort of interplay? It sounds like there, are, from what you're saying, Rainer, that there's almost two types of fantasy going on in the film. And there's a, um, 
there's the sort of overt fantastical supernatural beings, which nicely enough are sort of, or neatly enough, are located in the woods and the forests that surround humanity and civilization that, that draws on folklore and is very much explicitly coded as being fantastical within the film. And then there's this other fantasy of the past, which is a, a, a fantasy of, of a type of civilization that never existed, that might have existed that did exist, that could have existed, and sort of playing with... So that there's almost like there's two levels of, of, of fantasy going on, and the film's playing with different ways of both plausibility and implausibility by, by juggling this the threat of the forest, which is coded as explicit and implausible and supernatural and beyond the ordinary, against this force of humanity, which is equally fantastical in some ways, but the film doesn't necessarily ask us to, to engage with that quite as much. It's almost playing with what we're choosing to believe in and what we're not choosing to believe in, in terms of the film's um, world building, if that makes any sense. Oh, I like that idea of what we choose to believe in being being at the heart of all of this, because I think that that really touches on both sides of the equation there. You've got the kind of revisionist history that we are choosing to believe in and it it stretches credibility at moments but it's it's intriguing in its possibilities the idea that maybe the emishi tribes didn't all die out in the 7800s in japan and maybe they're still lingering in the 1400s um you know i i want that to be true and i think miyazaki wants that to be true so i think that you're absolutely right that idea that we're being asked to believe in this is is really important and on the flip side of that there are complete inventions within the forest gods of course and you know talking wolves and all the rest you know and, and all the rest of the talking animal gods and the the refrain in all the way through the movie is really interesting in relation to them because once lady eboshi um, manages to kill the forest god she's constantly and other people are constantly talking about how if you can kill them the leader of the forest gods then all the other gods will just become beasts again so we'll lose the fantasy if we can destroy the main beast so there's a that that seems to me a way of getting us to side with the animal gods because we don't want i think we if we buy into if we believe in the and enjoy that side of the fantasy in the in Princess Mononoke. We don't want to lose the talking gods in the forest. We we like those characters. I think we're intended to. Certainly, we don't want to lose you know the cutest characters in this movie. We wouldn't want to lose the Kodama tree sprites in the forest. So there's there's a real thing about belief in here and what we choose to believe in and what we don't. Well, I think that kind of connects up to exactly yeah, Alex's, Alex's point about the sort of the imaginary that that history is what we sort of collectively believe it to the, to be. And I hadn't realised that it was this that the that the film was um, yeah offering this sort of revisionist history um, and and presumably using using fantasy in in as a particular narrative strategy. I wondered, and I had a note, and I don't know whether this is true, but is there an interplay? Is is are we equating or can we equate fantasy and um, sort of modernity? Because both fantasy and modernity often seen as these threats to kind of tradition. Um, and so I wondered whether, if it, within this relationship that the film sets up between uh, the humans and then the, I think there's a line of dialogue at one point about all that all that they really want is for the humans in the forest to live in to live in peace. Um, 
And so I don't know whether in Alec, with Alex's fantasy hat on, whether fantasy plays the role in this film of sort of uh, in, in kind of cro- encroaching modernity in some ways. And that there is a, a threat that's being placed upon the land by fantasy in the same way that the, the, the sort of the iron industry that is is framed in the film as as taking from the from the landscape uh, is there an equation here between fantasy and fantastical intrusion as a threat on tradition um and it's it's sort of i don't know allegorical function as modernity is that something that um yeah is that something that rings true yeah i mean there's there's a concept in in at least theories of western fantasy that's popularized by by john cluton and grant in their encyclopedia of fantasy called thinning which is this sort of idea that most fantasy texts are set in a world where magic feels lost or needs to be regained or there's some level of um of an elegiac nature for a world that once was and is not um and you know the canonical texts like the Lord of the Rings are nicely examples of they're always set in a world that needs fixing in some respect and, and part of the magic is is trying to restore some balance that was that is not there um, and that's often linked to this this idea of the portal quest that the, the, the point of the portal quest is to is to send a character not of this world in some way into the world to fix it and to and to and to sort it out and I was thinking about that at least in the first half of this movie, where you've got the main character, and classically don't remember any of the names of these people, but um, that's that's me, and and I must stay true to my persona on this podcast. Um, but the main um, character sort of journeys through the woods, um, and he's looking for a cure. But it's really interesting that what he's looking for a cure for is a cure for himself, at least at first. He's not trying to fix the land. He's trying to fix himself, which implies that the land isn't sick, at least at first, but then we start to learn that parts of the land are potentially sick, that there are some things that need restoring. Um, and and perhaps if we try to apply this slightly clunky Western idea to this, you know, Japanese uh, fantasy history, what we're getting here is is the thinning is actually coming. Yeah, it's, it's this sense of um, an elegiac, both, both the, this vision of history and this vision of the forest will both be gone because of the encroachment of modernity, so it's not it's not up to the job of any character in the movie to fix fix this sense of thinning. It's just pervasive throughout the whole story, even at its most joyous moments. So, if I could jump in there, I think one of the really interesting things about the parts of this movie that are least fantastical are the way Miyazaki frames them through Lady Eboshi. So he's talked about Lady Eboshi as a modern character. He constantly uses that refrain, a modern character. Um, so it's she's the intrusion in some ways. She's uh, running this community, the iron smelting community, that is technologically way more advanced than the samurai characters who are in the background, Lord Asano and his samurai um, invaders, are in the background of this. But she seems to be the modern intrusion. And she's incredibly accepting and sympathetic as as a potential villain, a modern encroaching villain who's destroying the environment. You know, she's giving a home to lepers and she's giving a home to um, prostitutes, you know, so they're or ex-prostitutes, I should say. And so there's there's a way in which this revisionist bit of history and her modernism is an encroachment, almost an a, a an encroachment on the fantasy world. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I actually wanted to talk to you about 
uh, about gender in the way that you've, you've framed it, because I've heard you previously talk about where we can see Ghibli's feminism or Ghibli's um, female representation, where we might look, um, how we can kind of reorient debates that have previously focused on certain kinds of areas. Um, and I've heard you, you, you speak about, I guess, more marginal and incidental women characters. And, and when I was watching the film, that whole sort of female cooperative, that, that um, gendered uh, workforce, I just wondered whether how that fits into the, in those kinds of debates. Is it a kind of um, radical site of uh, meaning because it allows us to look at or think about forms of female leadership um, yeah, I mean, where does that, where does the film like Mononoke sit within these these debates around Ghibli's relationship to gender? Because it seemed, I really enjoyed, um, I really enjoyed those scenes where you know the, the the female characters have a bit of sarcasm or their that kind of cooperative workforce. I found was really um, was really playful. But yeah, I just I just wondered where it sort of sits within your broader interest. Um, in Ghibli's relationship to, to female representation? There's so much going on in this movie around female representation, and I do love it. So from uh, Moro, the wolf goddess, who's played by Akihiro Miwa, who is a drag queen in Japan, to the, um, the kind of side characters, the little characters in here, which are everything from wise woman to comedy relief to... Um, you know, a very a kind of powerful set of examples of female leadership as well. And, you know, Iboshi is a is a sympathetic character despite her hardness, and San is a sympathetic character despite her wildness. And I think the lovely thing about this movie is it never triangulates the idea of woman around traditional notions of femininity. So no matter which which kind of part of the film or which female character you're looking at it's always doing something different with female representation doing something unusual with female representation and I think that's very much to its credit so is that is that part of the films I mean does, does that make the film quintessential Ghibli or is that make does that make the film a departure from what Ghibli have been doing up to up to this point um in terms of its gender politics for you um, <laughs> it's a really hard question. In some ways, this movie is a bit of a culmination of ideas. Right. Um, but it is also a departure. So the, there are similar characters to some of these characters, like Lady Eboshi is not a million miles away from Kushana, who we meet, um, the warrior woman that we meet in Naushka of the Valley of the Wind, who's, again, an antagonist character, but very sympathetically drawn by Miyazaki. So I, I think there are some things that are refractions and reflections of earlier part, earlier representational strategies, but there's a lot here that he's trying to take from and twist around notions of tradition and women. So the idea that Toki and her fellow ex-prostitutes at the Tataraba would have this um, iron smelting job to do is a bit of an invention and a fantasy. There, there was in this period in Japanese history some iron smelting, but it was very much more a cottage industry sort of thing. Um, and to this day, there there are traditions within Japanese um, iron smelting that would deny women's place within those those kinds of communities. So 
in some ways, this is an Toki and her friends are an utter invention, but I think it's it's an invention that is purposefully trying to push back against the roles we've seen and the representations of women we've seen in the period film in Japan, whether that's live action or animation. And yeah. and I do think that's that's fairly radical. Um, and I do think because of its interest in history, it's a little bit different to some of the other Ghibli representations. I think the villainy of, of um, that a character is really interesting as well, because on one level, she's playing the sort of the antagonist of, of the of the of the film, if there is one. In the you know, her goal to sort of rid the forest of the gods is very much coded as, as being you know bad. Um, <laughs> if, if such a if, if such a black and white distinction can be made, I think that that is there in the movie. Um, so I was trying to think a little bit about the you know the complexity of that. In, that in many ways, she's incredibly. Um, progressive and sympathetic character, but there is a certain villainous aspect of, to what she's doing. In that part of her plan is very much against the the fantasy, the 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 the, the you know the, the cute critters, as you said earlier, that we 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 are on side with. Um, so I was trying to think of a way of sort of thinking through that, and it almost as if the film is wrapped up in this idea. If we think about the idea of modernity or civilization or a sort of a battle between humanity and and nature. Um, it's using that figure to sort of almost critique a false equivalency that this that this character represents, which is the idea that you know the only way for for equality is th- you know social equality is through human progress in sort of quotation marks. Yeah, this link between um, I guess a capitalist force which she embodies um, as being a drive towards social change. Um, and the film is almost unpicking that because she seems to think the two things are the same. To destroy the forest is to empower the women and the lepers and, and the, 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 the underclasses that she's sticking up for. And the two things have to be the same in her mind. And there's the source of the villainy and that they don't have to be the same. I think the film is critiquing. It's that false equivalency. Yeah, that absolutely sounds right to me. And I think there's, alongside that, you have what is being lost along the way, being emphasised mm. over and over again, that with the loss of the forest gods, the loss of magic from nature, we are not richer, but you know we are becoming disconnected from the natural world. So the idea that at the end she's going to maybe rebuild the iron smelting community but do a better job of it, and this time... She will have Ashtaka there to guide her ethically and morally as well, which is an interesting, maybe less feminist aspect to the end of the movie. Sure. Um, I think that that kind of idea of checks and balances comes in at the end, right at the very end of the movie, as an as a way of pushing back against the capitalist narrative that maybe Eboshi in her modernism represents. But at the same time, that comes still at the cost of nature, of, of supernature even. It comes at the cost of fantasy. And so mm. the fact that one of the very last shots is just the, of the forest regrowing and of a, a lone Kodama clicking its little head in the wilderness reminds us poignantly about what is lost when we encroach on the natural world. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you So the, the ending... You read it as that sort of attempt to sort of bring all these forces together in some sort of harmony. I guess there's two ways of reading it. Um, you could read it as a as a sort of, you know, 
Miyazaki offering up a fantasy of a history that could have been if only we'd sort of done what the conclusions, the characters conclude at the end of the movie, which is to somehow um, build build a new civilization in the place of this sort of destructive one that that embraces nature and has a checks and balance um, relationship with with ecology, or is it a sort of lamentation that this is a doomed? Um, Enterprise, almost you know, if you're saying about the sort of you know having this male figure come in and act as the as the supervisor, almost sort of introducing patriarchy to the idea, and um, what could have been is destroyed by the end of the movie. Is it a lamentation or a sort of celebration of fantasy that never could be? I guess the two things aren't necessarily op- op- opposed. Now I think that through, but it's certainly offering a way of reading the movie that's either very optimistic or very pessimistic about the future that actually did come. Yeah, and I think that's where the animation comes in. And we haven't really talked about the animation very much yet. Well, we will. We will. (laughs) um, For me, that's kind of where the animation comes in because we have a real split in this movie between moments of kind of beautifully, lushly drawn natural scenery and then ugly grey and brown modernity and industrialization and and those just the color schemes i think are are balancing out those questions as well so there's almost if you like a kind of subliminal messaging going on about what is good and what is less desirable within these questions as well um but i think when it comes to whether or not this is a a positive or a negative a movie with a positive or a negative message for me it's always aired on the side of positivity and it goes back to the original marketing campaign in Japan, which had that slogan of Ikiro to live um, or live. Um, And that is really important because that's kind of Ashtaka's message. And and when he knocks out both Iboshi and San, when they're having a fight in the, in the kind of middle of the movie, He's trying to get them both just to see if there's a way that they can live side by side and arguing against hatred and arguing for um, finding a positive way through. And by the end of the film, he Miyazaki seems to be telling us that there is a way through, but it comes at a cost to both sides. And the important thing is that both sides get to live. And whether that's a poignant lone Kodama um, as nature is, starts to rebuild, or whether it's Ashtaka and San deciding that they will be in love but not be together, you know, it comes at a cost, but there is a way to keep going forward. And I think that's that's the message of the movie, um, That, or at least by the time we get to the end, that's the message of the movie. So let's now talk about the animation for a little bit anyway. <laughs> a little bit anyway. Um, I mean, I have lots of little nu- kind of nuggets and, and, and questions and, and things to say about the style. Um, I think that your point, Rainer, actually about the, yeah, the, the, the greys and the, the sort of the earthy colours that are a, a signpost perhaps to what we as spectators are, are, are potentially supposed to think about or how the filmmakers are directing us or inviting us to read certain kinds of scenes based on color palette and so forth and style is exactly right and then presumably the film equally has the opportunity to present a particular positive you know you can use animation to create ambivalence so you've got a, a you know a shot of something that is 
outwardly positive, but the style in which it's presented suggests that there is there is something kind of irreconcilable about exactly this this broad attention that the film um, kind of wraps itself up in in terms of industrialization, tradition, modernity, all these all these sorts of things that we've we've talked about. Um, so it, it kind of got me thinking about how anima- how how the animation could be used to offset the you know there could be a split between form and content that we have this this positive uh, outwardly positive moment of narrative that is then undercut or given a, a slight nudge in a different direction because of the the style of animation um but i really wanted to whenever i watch ghibli films um i always think that the films they they never seem to date in terms of they they could all if if i watched all of ghibli's films back to back I, they all could have been made the same year. There's something atemporal about them that I really love. That I, whenever I watch them, I think, "Well, oh, this could have been made last year or 30 years ago." This I find them fascinating to look at, um, and I and I don't know why that is. Um, of course, we'll talk a little bit about the, the use of digital in the film because I think that is that is sort of striking. And again, I've heard you um, talk previously. Raina had the pleasure of hearing you talk about Ghibli's relationship to the digital, and obviously we know. Um, and certainly we've discussed on this podcast um, Ghibli's relationship to cell animation and traditional techniques. Um, but from what I gather, given that this film is 1997, uh, it has a sort of, it can be placed in conversation. It can and Ghibli can be placed in more of a, a rigorous conversation with digital technology. Absolutely, yes. Um, so for, by the time we get to Princess Mononoke, uh, Ghibli had been doing little experiments with digital technologies of animation for a while. Um, so I think On Your Mark was a, a music video they'd done with a little bit of CG in it. Then you have um, a very exciting, it's not exciting at all, bookcase sequence in uh, Pompoko by Isao Takahata, uh, where the, the camera pans across a couple of bookcases in a library, and that was done with CG, and they spent a lot of time talking about that. But for this film, they created um, a digital department at Ghibli. So this was the first time they really started um, promoting and emphasizing the uses of digital technologies. Um, Though I would say very much like Jurassic Park, there's not a huge amount of digital in this, but there there are just little moments. Um, And most of that was about pragmatics. This is the point in the late 1990s when... Um, cell animation starts to become harder and harder to do, particularly on the scale of something like Princess Mononoke. So estimates vary, but they had between 130 and 140,000 cells used on this movie wow. and or, or separate images used on this movie. And at the time they were starting to run out of or, or run out of places to buy the paints from. So cell paints were becoming rarer and rarer in this era. And so they were having to just pragmatically start to move to things like digital ink and paint. Um, and they started to use a little bit of compositing um, so that they could put 2D characters into three-dimensional um, spaces, which makes the action sequences feel you know, really exciting and vibrant at times in this movie, I think. Um, but the other thing they did was just little digital augmentations. So... Um, Famously, the worms on some of the uh, kind of uh, the cursed gods uh, there are covered in worms. Some of those were famously um, digitally created, and the Nightwalker version of the forest deity, the Shishigami, um, 
which is called Deida Rabochi in Japanese, but is, I think, the Nightwalker in English. So the yeah. Nightwalker has sometimes got these little golden particles floating around inside him, and that was done with digital tech as well. But they ran out of time, so they didn't do it all. Well, I mean, this this whole conversation between or that is being set up between Chiplin and digital technology, I find I find kind of fascinating. And actually, you know, in the way that the I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing the desire on the part of the filmmakers is to make that sort of move between cell animation and digital sort of seamless. And and, and so you have this weird you know, you have Hollywood cinema, certainly in the early 90s with these big effects. And you mentioned Jurassic Park. They are both integrated, but they're also effects. You know, we are watching characters watching the dinosaurs. So we are watching people watching digitally. You know, there's that sort of yeah. hierarchy kind of going on. Um, and this is seems... Toy Story. You know, this is well after Toy Story. So it's not I mean, those movies come to Japan and are big hits in Japan as well. So, you know, it might just be a sign of the times, but Ghibli has this reputation for traditional cell animation, but it's actually not that slow in adopting the digital stuff where it helps them and where it works for them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's something I kind of came to through through this, um, through your work, precisely that the, the Ghibli, we seem to often position them as you know, that Hollywood was this kind of forefront, you know, uh, Hollywood's proximity to Silicon Valley, it's its relationship to the digital. And as you say, this film comes comes out two years after. In fact, by this point, there is what one computer animated feature film, which is Toy Story, um, A Bug's Life and Ants wouldn't be released until 1998. So this film is is right right there at the start of how digital technology could, could be used. And I mean, if we think about Mononoke more broadly, the way that we've talked about the different kinds of characters. And I think actually, Alex, you mentioned earlier about um, Eboshi as a villain and then said, oh, if we can even call her that. And it seems like the film itself is all about these. It doesn't seem about hierarchies. It's about capitalism, um, but it's not, it's not, it doesn't seem to be about hierarchies. It seems to be about lots and lots of factors and characters and uh, forms of the supernatural versus um, the environment, all these sorts of things, lots of factors held in very delicate delicate balance and one thing could tilt it either way the world ghibli's films seem often very um very precarious which i really i really like that one thing could could um set the world on a different axis uh and in the, you know in the same way you have this integration between cell animation and digital technology for exactly the, the you know exactly the sequences that you said um in, in ways that are very familiar, I think, from the way that special effects are being used both in animation then, uh, and then in live action films as well. So stuff about mutation and metamorphosis and all these sorts of things, um, the use of backgrounds, um, the way that textures are mapped onto digital surfaces to create the illusion. There are certain sequences um, predicated on directional movement in the film that, that look to me to be, to be digital. Um, and so... Yeah, I think this film, as I said, we we historically tend to think or critically tend to place Ghibli far removed from from the digital when actually, as you say, they're right at the the forefront and playing with, okay, so how can we seamlessly, the computer doesn't look like anything in the way that a pencil on paper looks like something. So here we've got, okay, so what can the computer look like? How can we make this sort of seamless? Um, How can we make it in conversation with the sort of quote unquote Ghibli style. So I found its use of, of digital technology, both 
uh, you know, explicit and invisible. It's interesting that you say it's part of this broader promotion and, and the pragmatics of CGI because cell animation is becoming harder to do. Um, and yet the computer is being used to to not destabilize the 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 cell animated aesthetic that that is very ghibli in the way that it in the way that it looks. And I think that idea of a balancing act is absolutely key here. So at the same moment that they're emphasizing, yes, we now have a digital department, and yes, we're doing digital techniques in this film. They're also really emphasizing the use of a multiple. Um, high-profile background artist Kazuo Oga is like the guy who does the Ghibli backgrounds. You know, he's mm-hmm. the one. If you think of a Ghibli background, you think or a forest, you're probably thinking about his his work. I would have thought. Um, so that is the other side of this movie. There's a, a an emphasis on the traditional in animation that is there to balance out those emphases on digitalizing different parts of the animation. Um, so you get this kind of emphasis on lush landscapes. Those moments you were talking about before, Christopher, where they're where they are lingering on landscapes, lingering on the natural world. Those, yeah. I think, are there to balance out some of those digital things as well, because that's also what Ghibli is known for. Um, my favorite one of these is one of my favorite sequences in My Neighbor Totoro is when it starts to rain, and you can see the world become like the the ground becoming darker as the raindrops mm-hmm. hit. You get a little replay of that in Princess Mononoke, where we see a couple of raindrops fall onto the ground, and then we get this kind of big rain shower that changes the color of the ground. Or the scenes where um, Ashtaka's on Yakul and they're running through, they're going through um, fields, and you can see the wind blowing the the stalks of the grass in waves in the background. You know, things like that are very part of the Ghibli aesthetic, part of the traditions of Ghibli. And and I think they're there almost on a, a kind of balancing out of the scale between the digital and the, the traditional of, of what we think of as Ghibli. Absolutely. Um, I know that, that Alex is is itching to, to say something. I, I just I think on that note, the again, we've got that pull between digital technology and, and traditional, you know, and, and this this delicate balancing act. I just wonder then whether what Ghibli is really useful. Ghibli's films are really useful for thinking about the place of traditional cell, cell animation aesthetics within a, an ever expanding and, and kind of encroaching world of digital technology. They are very deft at finding a place for cell animation within a series of industrial processes that are evident, you know, evidently shifting towards towards digital technology. I, I'll need to do a bit more kind of work on on thinking about Mononoke's relationship to the digital. But um, a quick a quick internet search uh, software like Toon Shader, and I know we talked about mm-hmm. Toon Shading and cell shading on this on this podcast before, where the computer sort of looks like or digital technology, digital animation is made to look like cell animation. And so Miyazaki commissioning this piece of software, Toon Shader, giving that gives this this digital animation the look of of hand drawn. It seems they're very careful about finding and wanting to find a place for cell animation techniques within within a digital process. The digital can look like the traditional, and and in, in in a strange way, that means that the traditional is still present. It's replicated, but it's still it's still there. It's not it's it's and it's disguised. But we we have a digital technology um, 
a series of digital animation processes that are being veiled to look like traditional cell animated technique. Uh, and then and there's something in that. I think that the digital is is being is sort of being used in service of the thing that it would ultimately supplant. Yeah, and I guess I just to clumsily add to some of that, which I which I'm still unpacking because it was really interesting. But um, what what we're also talking about here is sort of a, a concern with or anxiety surrounding human agency and artistry and creativity and industry, which is sort of all folded within the, the thematic concerns of the story, right? In that um, we we must not forget. I always find an interesting paradox to play with 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 Ghibli is that. For a you know a studio that's an animation studio that's so obsessed with nature is a very interesting paradox in a in in one way because there's nothing natural about about choosing to make an animation you know animation can be interested in the natural but the process requires a certain level of human intervention at every frame I mean I guess so is so is true of a camera so is true of any form of sort of moving picture art but but you know there's 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 human agency is writ large into every single you know millisecond of this movie um and yet what studio ghibli's style seems to be at least the way it's sort of coddly interpreted internationally um is um a desire to 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 let human agency speak for more traditional forms forms that 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 allow creativity to exist without this sort of mechanizing force that surrounds it and all of this is folded up in the way cgi is used um cgi is spectacularizes these magical settings there's a moment in the film where a character says this place is magical and actually all you really see is a beautiful drawing of a wood yeah and so the magicality of it to, to invent a word immediately on the spot there. Um, uh, the magicality of it is 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 the human component, actually. It's the beauty of a drawing. Um, so it's all folded up within this very complex relationship between technology, history, uh, creativity, human agency as force for good, as force for evil, when to intervene, when to not intervene, when to let things be natural, when to let things be human, and the powers of all of it. I... So, Raina, what's this film about? <laughs> <laughs> and we're back to this. I mean, for me, I mean, if if I was to think about my favourite moments in this in this film and about how they're animated, I think probably only one of them would include that digital technology. I mean, there are things in here that extend the themes that we hear about from other Miyazaki films. So that idea of Miyazaki being really interested in, in flight and in the mechanics of flight. I think when you see Ashtaka riding Yakul across the, the the landscape, it almost looks like flight. And the way Miyazaki uses Kurosawa-esque diagonal spaces in this movie gives that sense of almost flight again as they go up and down hillsides. I think the fight scenes, between, particularly between Eboshi and San, I think are just beautiful and they really set a standard for how to animate sword fights. They're these wonderful, fast moving, blink and you miss it, um, motion lines and sparkles and glints off the swords and then poses that kind of almost um, kind of stop and let you wonder at the speed and at the skill of the sword fighters. And then you have on the flip side of that, just lovely moments of abstraction going on all the way through the film, particularly around the forest gods. So two of my favourites of the gods are the um, 
the apes that we see in the forest, which are almost always in shadow, red eyes, very abstracted, little little lines as shade rather than so rather than looking like the other gods and fully realized, they almost seem to be in a different world of their own. And the other group of characters that do that are the Kodama, who are sometimes even see-through. You can see the backgrounds through the transparent, uh, ghostly little figures of the Kodama. And I think when you start adding up all those beautiful moments, you can see the fantasy in this movie. And the fantasy in this movie is about that sort of abstraction playing out in different places at different times, whether it's an abstracted notion of flight or an abstracted notion of fighting or an abstracted notion of magic in the natural world. Um, but isn't the uh, you know the theme of flight more broadly again I, we've gestured to this previously i think and when we've talked about the shoujo character within totoro and and uh, the role of flight within that kind of type of character construction um and so there, again there's sort of something in that i think with regards to i, I mean i'm fascinated with Renison about the sort of diagonal movement um and that it's not necessarily the movement across a particular location, but it's the what the kind of the perspective and and yeah, there's something very and, and I think it goes back to something I said earlier about this sort of directional movement. I think and this I think is established right at the start actually of the of the film. We're dropped in, we're dropped in. We're not we're not going to go through the film from the beginning because we're 55 or so minutes in. But um, that immediate opening sequence that sets up. Um, the, the Emishi village, and then it's, it's essentially an action sequence. It's this this attack that then sets in motion Ashitaka's um, malaise, his physical malaise, and his his injury. Uh, and you immediately have this this big action sequence that that is set um, within a village, but it's it's really about these competing forces. And so uh, I think movement and and action and activity, it, those things in relation to fantasy. The role of uh, animation in in articulating metamorphosis and transformation and all these sorts of things, it, it's set up almost immediately in this opening sequence, and then from there everything is is and so many animated films in terms of their narratives are you know predicated on directional movement on the journey narrative. Um, it goes right back to Hollywood and the seven minute cartoon. You know you need to be able to tell things in in certain kinds of narrative cycles that are repetitive and they work in these in these cycles that can be repeated across seven minutes and then we're we're done. Um, a lot of animation is is rooted in in journeys and, and traveling and and i wonder whether that previously that's been written about in relation to children you know children's uh, predilection for discovery um figuring out the world around them a world that's not built for them so they discover they crawl up the walls all these sorts of things um so that idea of direction and discovery is is certainly something that i was feeling when i watched this film it picks you up right from the right from the start in that in that uh, battle sequence and then doesn't really drop you and you have these a real traversing of the fictional world over the next two hours, 15 minutes. Absolutely. And the fact that you've got that kind of link between darkness and light right at the beginning is, is so important there just to set up and establish the world. So the first character we meet is the cursed boar god who's on his way to the Emishi village, Nago. And he's going through the forest. And, and if you watch right from the beginning when we see Ashtaka and the other villagers in the Emishi village they are bathed in the most beautiful light and so Ashtaka goes to the top of the village lookout stand 
And when they get the reverse shot of what those what Ashtaka is looking at, it's this dark forest being pierced by um, shafts of light in a diagonal way. And that's what the monster emerges out of. So we get these these wonderful juxtapositions right at the beginning, totally sets up all the character um, the characterization that we need to know about, makes everything super clear before anybody really even talks. And I think that's part of the joy of this movie is that everything has been thought through so carefully and everything has been planned so well that you can pick up these little cues that, you know, I've been watching this film for two decades and more now and every time I do I notice something else about it something else in it that is really keying you in to think about the story and I guess going back to what Alex was asking about what is this movie about I think it's about the journey that the characters go on and about finding a way to live together so if we think about that then that does fit into those fantasy tropes just perfectly Absolutely, I, the, the, I think we're back to this idea of, of uh, balance, and, and I, gr- I agree with you absolutely that the structure and everything is thought through very carefully, and it's it's very uh, kind of economical, and the, the shots are beautiful to look at, uh, and the character designs. You never really know what you're going to get. I think with with Ghibli's. Uh, engagement with fantasy and it's it's the ability to create this army of fantastical creatures and and I just yeah I kind of find it the the, the role of the ima- imagination in their their construction of supernatural characters is kind of incredible really um I had a, I mean I had a uh, I guess a, a question about what did Ghibli do next essentially because it seems like this film for you Raina but also for the ways that we've discussed was a particularly um, important film industrially it's it bears out the, the use of the digital um, so the film was received well um, and was for a time when we're right in thinking was one of the most successful if not Ghibli's most successful film is is this right and yeah so this was a massive blockbuster in Japan people queued out of the front of cinemas round round whole city blocks to see this movie when it came out when I saw it in Kanazawa in 1997 it was in a smaller theater but when I went in people ran out of seats and they just stood for the two hours plus to watch this movie it was that popular you know the idea of standing up all the way through a movie is not unusual in Japan, but it only happens for the big hits. And so this was a massive hit in Japan. It broke all box office records um, right up until a little movie called Titanic came out a couple of months later. And that's been a normal story for Ghibli over the years. So Howl's Moving Castle or Spirit in the Way comes out and then there's a Spider-Man or a, a Harry Potter movie <laughs> that comes out and breaks the box office records again. But they were doing for a time they were absolutely the most powerful um company filmmaking company in japan which given the studio goes independent in the early 2000s is really unusual normally in japan it's still big corporations or big publishing companies massive transmedia networked companies owning the small animation arm or division that is producing the movies so ghibli is just not like other animation companies in many ways. Yeah, and, and did the film, because again, I know that you've written on, on the distribution and, and the kind of redubbing and, and part of when I watched this film, I thought, okay, so I have the option, of course, to listen to the uh, the uh, English cast and you, the features that he on, But did you watch it on Netflix? 
Either I watched it. I watched it on Netflix, but I watched it with uh, Japanese, obviously Japanese, the Japanese language and the England English subtitles, um, specifically to, to avoid. Uh, not that the cast of Billy Crudup and Claire Danes and Billy Bob Thornton aren't, you know, sights to behold. Oh, or... I watched it dubbed. Crudup, but Crudup and Danes all the way for me. Oh, um, okay. I I'm sure. I'm sure Rainer has something to say about that choice. Um, <laughs> but uh, obviously, I know that you've written about the the, the dubbing of this. Uh, of dubbing of, of Ghibli's films and 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 so forth, but um, so was it released? And I, and I don't know this, but okay. So one of the things I found really interesting when I went back to watch it on Netflix again was that they've changed. I think I'm right in saying that they've changed the subtitles. So right. one of the things that happened recently, or a couple of years ago now, was that Miyazaki came out and said that the the people who were living with Iboshi who were ill were actually suffering from leprosy. And that is now just written in. So they're they're using phrases like the um, the illness that is hurting my people and things like that when they're in the village. But instead of that, the translators have just gone straight to leprosy now. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there's been uh, one of the things I love about this is the way translation and adaptation and redubbing changes the story of this movie over time. Um, so you know you have the beautiful Neil Gaiman adaptation that was done by Disney. Well done by Buena Vista International for the American release of the film, and that he's quite open about the fact that he had to change quite a lot to explain things. So whenever a character's back was turned, he would insert extra dialogue so so that he could make the world make sense um, to people from outside of Japan. So he added extra exposition, and all of that was signed off by Ghibli, and they they seem to have been perfectly happy with it as long as it wasn't cut famously. Um, there is that famous story about um, Toshio Suzuki, the big producer at Ghibli, sending Harvey Weinstein a samurai sword and say with a, a note attached saying no cuts. And I don't know if that's apocryphal or not, but... Who cares? It, it, we know about history. Story. We can historically revise it. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's a book coming out in that has been out in Japanese for a while, but it's coming out in English next month by one of the international marketing guys from Ghibli to retelling that story again. So it's one that just doesn't want to go away. <laughs> uh, but I think one of the the fascinating things about the way this the way the movie has changed over the years is it has become almost a more open text or a more overt text than it was originally. So originally it would just allude to things and in translation, things have become much more overt, much more open and maybe a bit clearer even in the storytelling mm. over time. Well, I, I think the, the, the idea of the, the reauthoring of the film, and I'm just trying to, obviously thinking about the current context that we find ourselves in. I remember right at the start of the, the sort of uh, pandemic lockdown, there was, uh, I think, news that Ghibli had obviously released certain a certain number of films on onto Netflix, or and there were a bunch of articles around sort of the middle of April time that talk about, you know, if you're in lockdown, this is the great, you know, we can now watch, you can sit and watch Ghibli's films, and and, and certainly I remember their, their um, animated features being something as a, of a reference point for people that were suddenly you know perhaps finding themselves inside more than they they would do but I think it speaks to a bigger question of animation and, and maybe this is a, a discussion for another day but animation's place within these um platforms you know there and we and 
I know that Alex and I have had conversations about how animated films are archived or how they're stored and, and advertised on these sorts of um, streaming platforms uh, as a genre. And we, we all know the debates around animation's relationship to genre. But the fact is, is that uh, things like Netflix and, and Amazon Video and all these sorts of platforms, streaming platforms, uh, on-demand platforms, do use generic labels in a particular kind of way. Um, in the case of your, that you're talking about, it seems like you know that this, this transmedia or this this afterlife of the film that when they get moved onto these on-demand streaming services uh, creates potentially another version of of the film where obviously you know cuts have been made etc but in the case of dubbing and I, I find that fascinating that characters turn their back and therefore you you can slip in moments of of, of dialogue as, as exposition to sort of explain the story because you don't have to sync up any dialogue with with character lip movement, which I think is amazing. Um, so there's something, again, it's, it's something interesting, again, about animation's afterlife, what, what happens when it migrates onto these kinds of forms. Um, and presumably the same is true with fantasy, the way that these films are archived and displayed and um, put on the shelf, so to speak, changes the way that we engage with it. I'd be interested to know whether this film is archived under an animation or a fantasy, or both perhaps um but i think the net, the netflix point the streaming point um adds another layer of discussion about uh, the, a, another layer of discussion that we've previously only sort of thought about and perhaps in relation to, to dubbing you know that we've thought about what happens when a film moves across national borders here we've got what happens when it moves onto onto the small screen but um yeah just a just a thought so it's a great thought, and the fact, that Ghibli, the fact that Ghibli have been so late to this party is really interesting. So the first thing that came out um, was actually Ronya the Robber's Daughter from Ghibli. That was done by Goro Miyazaki and was re released in the UK on Amazon Prime. I think that's the first one that came out. Um, but then they did this deal with Netflix, and it seems to have been it seems to have gone through Wild Bunch, which is um, a really interesting distributor. But usually they do more kind of, forgive me if I'm getting this wrong, but I think they usually do more kind of world cinema types of things, popular world <laughs> cinema, genre cinema stuff. Um, so you've got G-Kids in the States, which were doing a lot of the Ghibli releases, and then you've got Wild Bunch in Europe that seem to be doing it. So it seems like this is just such a complicated network of distribution that it's almost... Like I think it is almost another conversation, but I think in terms of changing the meanings, I as a teacher was was suddenly going, oh, so if my students have Netflix, I now no longer need to do screenings. You know, yeah. so there was a there was a real moment where these movies had previously been kind of expensive and hard to get hold of, or had been in and out of distribution in different places, so there were different versions going around. And you could do a screening and it was something special because they weren't on streaming platforms. And and I think now you've got a different thing where ubiquity is going to be, make a really interesting difference to teaching Studio Ghibli from now on. People's mm -hmm. ability to see it, their ability to access it, their ability to grow up with it as a media, as a form of media, will be really exciting in maybe shifting some of the conversations around the dominance of different sorts of animation. Um, I, I'm very excited to see what happens with that. Um, do we have any final thoughts? Because we, um, we're, we're getting um, ahead of ourselves here. Um, I've written down, why does Miyazaki like boars so much? Reina, <laughs> do you want to take that for me? 
I think one of the things I love about this movie is how ugly they make some of these characters. And the Boar Gods are some of the ugliest characters in Ghibli's history. I think they're heroically, beautifully ugly in some ways. Okay, that one that's that one answered. Chris, any final thoughts from you? Yes, and it kind of it, it nicely nicely and we hadn't planned this but it, it, it actually the theme of boars ties in with what I'm about to say which is um, what I found really interesting is that the again I always find Ghibli's films obviously quite light in terms of their, their use of, of flying but actually something that you raised about characters riding animals and, and beasts and things like this uh, was the idea of kind of volume and weight and obviously things that are heavy are very difficult to articulate in animation because it is this sort of weightless weightless medium so to try and articulate a character that is strong is very difficult um and so what i liked about this film is that it, it there's lots of heaviness a lot of the characters and the the i i felt the heaviness in the way that the characters were drawn um which i guess ties in with what you said about balls um but i really liked the weightiness versus um just from the drawings i could tell if something was light or if something was heavy and i and i really liked that about the film and any final thoughts from you Raina? Uh, what is the film about? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I keep coming back to this film because I don't think I've ever answered that question. <laughs> or not to my own satisfaction. Um, it's fun asking it, though. Yeah, it's fun. Um, no, but... we, I keep circling around this idea of of the the kind of instruction to live that comes through this over and over again, given how much is lost here. You know, by the end of it, we've had people die. We've had the death of the gods. We've got loads of loss in this movie. But that idea of carrying on and living seems to be really key to this film and its meanings. And I think maybe particularly in this this lockdown mm. protest um, moment that we're in, there's something really important about that message coming around again to us. Yeah, and, and perhaps why listeners chose it as their feel-good film, because that is, I think, a, perhaps a very resonant message um, of our time. Um, Raina, if um, people are encountering your work for the first time through this podcast, which is insane, but if they are, um, <laughs> how can they read more about your work? Where can they find it? Um, how can they access it? Um, I've written a book called Anime, A Critical Introduction, which should be not too expensive and available through all good bookshops. Um, I'm currently working on an industrial history of Studio Ghibli, which I hope beyond hope to have finished by October this year. So that should be out relatively soon. Um, if you want to find me, I'm at the University of East Anglia and my name is fairly unusual. So I'm easy enough to find if you want to get in touch. And I'd love to hear from people. I, I love talking about anime. So any excuse to talk about Japanese animation or anime. Awesome, terrific. Chris, shall I do the admin? Uh, the admin, the ad, the anime, the admin for this week. Please do. Um, I, I would just, uh, before you do that, I will add in that if you get a chance to talk to Raina, uh, you should, listeners. Uh, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Ditto. Um, uh, so you can find us on the usual channels. You can find us on Twitter at FanAnimResearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research, as well as on Facebook and on Instagram. And I think on Reddit these days as well. Um, so get involved with the conversations across there. Or alternatively, drop us a message on the website, fantasy-animation.org, where you can find uh, archives of our blog posts and podcasts. So why not download the episodes on My Neighbor Totoro, um, and uh, Laputa, Castle in the Sky, um, which are freely available. 
Um, we're sourcing crowd. We're, we're crowdsourcing for the next um, but one episode. So in a month's time, please send us your suggestions of um, a film to expand our horizons. Um, make it non-white. Make it non-binary. Make it non-Western. Make it inclusive. Make it diverse. Um, make it something we've never heard of and give us a good reason and we'll do it on the next show we'll take all the suggestions we've got chris and i will pick our favorite and we'll explain why on the next episode so do get in touch those are the means to do so um for now Raina, thanks so much for coming on the podcast well thank you guys for having me such a good time thank you yeah we've had a great time too and we'll see you all next time goodbye bye